Are human rights part of God's mission? How do non-Christians reflect the image of God? Does the parable of the Good Samaritan say more about human rights than we might think? And how does all this speak into how we engage with faith in the public square today? Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cramer Hall Durham where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host Philip Fleming, and in today's show I'll be talking to Joel Edwards. Formerly Joel was General Director of the Evangelical Alliance, International Director for the MICA Challenge and a Commissioner with the Equality and Human Rights Commission. He's currently a visiting fellow of St John's College here in Durham. And our question today is, should Christians be concerned with the religious freedom of those of other faiths? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Joel Edwards, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. Give us a little bit of an insight into uh, your backgrounds, the different roles you found yourself doing over the years, and in particular, what your present phase of life involves. Mm. My background is I came from Jamaica, um, where God has his official residence, I hasten to add. Uh, I left when I was eight years old. I've been a Londoner ever since, and my pilgrimage has included a stint um, in London Bible College, now LST, many years ago. Um, 14 years in the probation service, which came after that, interspersed with a period of 10 years as a pastor. And then various tasks and responsibilities around the orbit of the Evangelical Alliance, first as a general secretary for the African and Caribbean Evangelical Alliance, and then as UK director, and then from 1997 till I left in 2008 as director of the Evangelical Alliance. And then I had the huge privilege um, of uh, being the international director for a thing called MICA Challenge, which was a global Christian response to the Millennium Development Goals, eight promises to reduce extreme poverty by 50% by the year 2015. That was kind of a great privilege. On the line lot of that, which brings me to my current responsibilities, um, has been being a visiting fellow here um, in St. John's and pursuing a DTHM doctorate, which I'm hoping to complete fairly soon. I know your research has focused significantly uh, on human rights and Christian involvement in human rights and understanding how Christians might be at the forefront of advocating for human rights. Tell us how you first got interested in that area. Yeah, human rights is a sort of tapestry or the circumference of my interest, really. The centre of it is um, much more to do with freedom of religion or belief. Why should Christians um, propel themselves beyond a very narrow concern for other Christians being persecuted to take up the challenges under the Universal Declaration of um, Human Rights, uh, Article 18, to defend the freedom of belief, of people of all faiths or none, which is quite a challenging proposition. And what led me into that was um, a number of experiences I had, many of them during my tenure as General Director of the Evangelical Alliance, in which I became involved as someone on the periphery of human rights activities. And being in those 
settings where I saw non-Christians advocating for the freedom of conscience of other people who they would never meet in various parts of the world, I found extremely inspiring. And so it made me begin to ask a really critical question, which was, is this actually a part of God's mission? You know, sat here with what was often secular agencies and government officials. Is this a part of what God is doing in terms of his liberating work in the world? So that was a fascination which then led me to begin the the research. And then I needed um, I needed an agency who was involved in that space. And so I came to a place called Christian Solidarity Worldwide, great organisation just on the outskirts of London. Um, I had the privilege of working with them both as the researcher, and it was very timely me being there, but also a very unique space, an evangelical religious freedom agency, which was committed to freedom of religion or belief and trying for themselves to work through the theological rationale for their praxis. So it was, it was, it was a timely um, kind of a partnership which developed from there. Within that context, it's fairly easy to see why Christians would agree that they should be free to practice their own creed and faith. What is it that motivates you to say, well, that's actually something that should be a concern for all religions, that Christians should be concerned for all religions to practice their faith and not just Christians? Mm. And, and what would be, why is it, what is it that makes Christians a bit nervous about going into that sort of space? Yeah, that's a very big issues there aren't they i think the first is that the concept of human dignity and human rights predates 1948 and you know in terms of international law you could talk about the american um bill of rights which preceded us of course and the significant amount of christian influence there the whole concept of separation of state and church and the the sanctity of individual choice was was embedded there already um, habeas corpus, Magna Carta, all of those things were streamed which flowed into the 1948 experiment. Way before that, and a part of what has fascinated me in taking a look at this, has been Christian engagement in this concept that the freedom to choose, the freedom of conscience, the freedom of thought is basically sacred which goes right back to the beginning of biblical times, back to the book of Genesis, to the idea that people are created in God's image. So way back from early scholars, to Tertullian, Lactantius, straight through Middle Ages, people like Aquinas, this, this thought of the sanctity of choice and non-coercive worship and the balance between government responsibility to protect the individual rights was already embedded in principles of natural law, which which were very much a part of the Christian history. And a lot of these streams flowed in to the experiment of 1948. Mm. I think what concerns Christians now, to come to the second part of your question, is the fact that um, there has always been a tension, there always will be a tension, between notions of individual choice and freedoms and community uh, responsibility for issues of security and so on. That's always been a part of the tension. What concerns many of us as Christians, and particularly in the context of Europe, 1950, the 2010 Equality Act, 
is that whereas the first generation of rights were really about much more about human flourishing and freedoms of conscience and practice, what we have within the second and third generation of rights is a conflation of those protections for individuals and the protection of public spaces. So in 2010, there was a conflation of previous anti-discrimination laws, race, sexism, and so on, which got embedded into the 2010, and therefore alongside religious freedom or freedom of conscience and belief, came all these others, these other um, prescriptive um, articles, what we mustn't do, the protection of other people. And so what you have in the current climate is a clash of what could be perceived as secular rights, as opposed to religious or faith freedoms. Um, and that's about how do Christians share public space where we now no longer have dominance in public places to determine what's right or wrong. It'd be good to explore that a bit more later. Mm. Can I take you back to what you began to suggest would be a biblical case for asserting the importance for every person to have the right to express their creed or faith. Mm. You began to take us back to those first chapters of Genesis and to explore why the fact that all people are made in the image of God mandates a care that they should be able to choose how to worship. Tell us more about that and why you think those that text and image is so important Mm. i think one of the things i have been really fascinated by and almost excited by in a semi-academic way um has been the degree to which theological and biblical principles and ideals forecast were forecast before 1948 and actually reflect themselves or the aspirations of 1948 reflect back Mm. some of those um, biblical ideas. And the first, I think, is definitely anchored in the idea of the Imago Dei. Everyone. Imago Dei, the image of God. Everyone is made in the image of God, irrespective of race, religion, uh, or ethnicity, and so on. And this has been a, a stable conviction of the church for many years. I think the second theological idea is that because people are made in the image of God, it means that dignity and sanctity of individual life flows from that. So the covenant with Noah, uh, if you kill, God takes that very seriously, your life will be required. On the one hand, it's quite draconian, but what it actually undergirds is the fact that God takes homicide really seriously why because other people are made in his image and therefore to attack another person uh, gratuitous violence is actually gratuitous violence against god himself and i think that's really important i think the other thing which comes out of the creation narrative is the idea that that not only are people made in the image of god but irrespective of belief system or philosophy everyone made in god's image has been delegated by God to be stewards of the earth, delegated by God to take care of the common good 
And that's built into the idea that we are God's representatives on earth. And therefore, there was an indiscriminatory principle at work there. Regardless, so God hasn't discriminated. God doesn't discriminate yeah. between a Muslim or a Sikh or a Hindu mm. or a non-believer in terms of the sense that this individual has been given stewardship responsibility. And these are very, very strong ideas, which goes back to the a kind of a Christian anthropology embedded in a Christian concern for religious freedom and for human rights more broadly. I think the second set of principles which I've been trying to look at carefully is it flows from a kind of a Christian universalism. And by universalism, I do not mean everyone gets saved eventually. That's not what I'm saying at all. But there's a sense that what J.I. Packer once called God's cosmic generosity really does flow to everybody. And there's a universality in the application of God's grace and goodness indiscriminately given. And a number, of, a number of reasons for that. One, it flows from the idea of everybody in God's image. The second, if one looks at elements of common grace uh, and the fact that God's grace is bestowed on all people. Jesus said in Matthew 5, he makes the sun shine on the, you know, the good and the bad. And there is that principle already at work. The second is a very strong, perhaps not quite so pronounced now, but certainly very strong, very strong with Aquinas, very strong um, from the church fathers through Aquinas into um, individuals who helped to shape the UDHR, to shape the Universal Declaration, um, was the idea uh, of natural law that everybody has embedded within them uh, an, an ability to discern what is good and to execute that for the common good. That natural law informs us because we are made in the image of God. And once again, that has nothing to do with one's belief system or a lack of it. These are very strong principles. But that universality as well um, pushed me to to consider the ethics of Jesus. Um, So the questions I'm asking um, would be questions like, yeah, when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, was he just talking to converted Christians or those who would be converted? Is there any way in which we can begin to um, apply the blessedness of the peacemaker, the blessedness of the merciful, to those who may not be Christians? And it's a little bit contentious, but I'm enjoying the contention of that idea, at least with myself at the moment. Um, And so it seems to me that there's a principle here which is broader than perhaps just Christians um, in terms of the common good. That's great to hear the way in which even... The, the the concept of the image of God can sometimes be quite a small principle. What you've shown is it's actually a very big idea mm. and actually the, the indiscriminate nature in which God has blessed humanity and made humanity in his image and given humanity responsibilities mm. is all a, a sort of fairly thick river that flows into our concern of human rights for the others. Mm. I know one of the New Testament passages that you've spoken compellingly about in relation to this is is what we call the parable of the good samaritan mm. but your reading of it kind of takes us further than we're often taken with that uh often a sunday school narrative mm. why do you think that parable is is so radically interesting when it comes to this question about this care for the other yeah i i think luke is 
really pushing the boat out here with the Good Samaritan and probably gets quite frustrated when he hears the average version on a Sunday. Uh, the first thing I, I, I step back from is, is the notion that he was a good Samaritan. Jesus doesn't actually call him good. He's a, a Samaritan. He's a Samaritan. I think the problem is when we, when we label him good, we make him a charity case, you know. Um, and that is definitely a part of the story, definitely a part of the narrative. What Jesus is really driving at is far more profound than that. He's asking, what does the law require at its simplest, purest, most demanding? Love the Lord your God with all your soul, heart and mind. Who demonstrates this? Ah, let me tell you a story, Jesus says. And what he does is he brings up the enemy, his audience's enemy, a Samaritan, and demonstrates by the parable that here's an outsider who's not just doing something nice to a broken person by the roadside, but here's an outsider who is demonstrating what our religious leaders have failed to do, which is to fulfill the law of what it means to be a neighbor. And therefore, he's suggesting that beyond the covenantal relationship of Judaism is the capacity of a stranger, an enemy even, not just a stranger, to fulfill the requirements of the greatest law in a way which we have failed to do. And that's by redefining what it means to be a neighbor. That's the power of the Samaritan story. And this wasn't an odd one-off Sunday school lesson. If one looks at Jesus and his relationship with Samaritans, he had a very, almost disturbingly close relationship with Samaritans. And he's telling the story in the context of the Transjordan area, where Samaritans and Jews were constantly up against each other. So he's deliberately... Um, demonstrating neighborliness in a profound and provocative way and showing that actually this this definition of neighborliness goes beyond and above religious traditions. Actually, it's somebody who can show mercy. And very interesting that blessed are those who show mercy, Matthew 5. The Samaritan is the one who shows mercy. And that's a very unusual construct in the New Testament. You don't often find that being applied in that, you know, beyond the um, the Jewish community. So here you have a Samaritan doing exactly what the audience of the Sermon of the Mount and the Beatitudes were being encouraged to do, even though he may not have been somebody who we think would have been among the original audience, or we often think he wasn't perhaps the converted follower of Jesus. Yeah, I think... What happened when Jesus finished telling that story wasn't everybody going away and grabbing a paintbrush to do up their neighbor's fence. It was people with their bottom drawers on the floor saying, what? A Samaritan has fulfilled the law of love and mercy when we failed? Goodness. It would have been really shocking. We've looked at this image of God in Genesis. We've looked at the uh, story of the, the Samaritan. We're not going to call him the Good Samaritan. I know there's a third passage that has really kind of spoken to you, this time from the Old Testament, about the suffering 
that Christ experienced and that how that changes the way we see suffering on the part of others. Talk us about that. One of the individuals I spoke to in Christian Solidarity Worldwide in the course of my research um, said something which totally blew my mind. In one way, it was quite simple. We were talking about suffering, and she said, the fact that we understand suffering as Christians should therefore make us empathize with the suffering of all people because we understand as Christians Jesus is suffering so I said gosh do you mean that we're sort of caught up in a kind of fellowship of suffering and she said yeah I think I think that's what I mean <laughs> and that really got my mind thinking the fellowship of suffering what therefore is the continuity between the suffering of Jesus, Isaiah 53, and the suffering of the world. And if indeed the suffering servant has borne all of our sin and carried all of our sorrows, where does that stop? And if indeed there is a program of redemption which includes not just freedom from sin, which as an evangelical is our starting point and a non-negotiable understanding of the work of the cross. That salvific work is something we do not um, undermine in any way. But if actually human suffering touches God, where else is that mediated apart from the work of the suffering servant? So I was saying to my local church recently you know when you turn up in a hospital to visit your christian friend and we pray for them um and then across the way there is a non-christian person who is asking for prayer and we pray for their healing or well-being on what basis are we praying for that person's healing even though they may never come to faith in Jesus Christ. If it's not communicated or accessed through the suffering of Jesus, then where is it accessed? And so this idea of the fellowship of suffering, I find quite compelling. I was almost annoyed, but gratified as well, when I was reading a book by Wheeler Robinson, Suffering, Human and Divine, he actually has a passage in that book about a fellowship of suffering. And he's also very careful to say this doesn't actually set aside the redemptive suffering of Jesus, which is a non-negotiable idea for us. But actually it does say to us that the capacity of the servant's suffering must touch the Muslim being persecuted by other Muslims or by Christians. It must apply to the Baha'i in Iran. It must apply to the atheist who has been locked up and interned, or the journalist in Saudi Arabia who has been incarcerated for doing nothing more than expressing free thoughts. And therefore, this idea of the fellowship of suffering and how that then speaks to the 80% of the world's population who have their religious freedom compromised to some degree, this suffering must speak to these individuals. And therefore it becomes not politics, but mission in my mind. 
you've taken us to those three distinct places the the image of god from genesis uh, 1 and 2 you've taken us to this redefinition of neighborliness through the the parable of the of the samaritan and then this fellowship of suffering sort of imaged in 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 isaiah 53 can you connect those together and say how do they flow through to how a Christian might understand therefore, and you've hinted that just now, how a Christian might really weigh with concern and therefore flow out with action the suffering of others for their faith? Yeah, so the first is that we have to make exactly the same um, cultural and spiritual and theological jump which Jesus' audience had to make when they listened to the story of the Good Samaritan. This was not a comfortable story. This was a Copernican, Copernicus revolution. Um, and so until we begin to reassess precisely what is it that Jesus is saying, both through his teaching and through his death and through God's loving the world, John 3.16, and redefine neighborliness, not just as doing good stuff to other people, but actually being a part of other people because we share a common um, ancestry in God. So I would not expect a Christian relief and development agency to turn up in a disaster zone after an earthquake or a tsunami and say, okay, all the Christians on the right, everybody else on the left, Christians on the right, we're going to take care of you. You on the left, Good luck and God bless you. That is inconceivable. And I would like to think that at some point, Christian agencies who recognized that God has called us to indiscriminate care realized that they were outworking the mission of God in relation to practical needs. To that extent, the story of the Good Samaritan really works. But I think the story of the Good Samaritan works even more deeply when we have recognized that in the same way that Jesus was suggesting that somebody of a very different philosophical and religious background was also capable of exhibiting behavior consistent with the image of God should inform us to then say, wow, this is uncomfortable. But we've really got to take seriously this idea that people who do not believe in God are worthy of protection if they're being persecuted or killed or not educated properly or disappearing because they express their faith or their belief system in some other part of the world. And therefore, I have a missional responsibility to take care of that God-given gift, which is called the freedom of choice and conscience. Tell us how that missional imperative that you described and that you've lived with and that you've seen in the scriptures and felt in your heart, I can see that. How has that spoken to you and challenged you and even changed you in recent years? It's challenged me because I came to recognise how consistent this missional call has been for 2,000 years of the church's history, and I didn't really see it at all. Um, So intellectually and theologically it's challenged me because 
missionary agencies for 2,000 years have maintained this tension uh, from the first 300 years of the church's history to uh, people like uh, Bartolomeu de las Casas, who was a Catholic missionary in Peru in the 17th century, um, who displayed exactly this kind of representation of the mission of God to pagans, they would have been called, and talking about being friends and protecting their freedom to believe something entirely different. Roger Williams in Massachusetts, exactly the same kind of conviction. And so what it says to me today is I have to find a way of maintaining my freedom to say Jesus is Lord and insisting that in the public square, even in an increasingly secular environment, room is made to accommodate that in the liberal democracy because I'm challenging a liberal democracy to be true to its own principles of freedom. I'm not saying I've got to preach the gospel because God says so. I'm not saying I've got to preach the gospel because I'm a Christian and we were here first. I'm saying, no, if we're true to our own principles of liberal democracy or even a secular environment which we want to create, then let's be secular. Let's be true to ourselves. So that's, I think, a challenge. I'm faced with changing my narrative and not insisting on the right to be heard because I'm a Christian, but insisting on the right to be heard because we want to be consistent with ourselves as a society. But equally, I've got to realize that a part of my responsibility is to make sure that other people's right to be heard, as long as this isn't inciting violence and so on, but the right to be heard is also respected and people of other faiths is respected. And I've got to learn to be able to do that in such a way that I do not sell short the particularity of the cross, that I am still willing to stand up for the stigma of the cross and yet be heard to defend the right of another person made in the image of God who may see things and believe things diametrically opposed to myself and to understand that that's a part of the new missionary landscape, particularly in places like Europe, but in many other parts of the world, and to recognise that this language within the framework of human rights, which is not a perfect toolkit, by the way, and I'm not a human rights defender per se, um, but that this toolkit called human rights is for many people in other parts of the world the only forum they have to discuss their survival and the only forum I have to speak to their governments about their survival. And so that's the tension we're in. Here in the UK, human rights becomes a battleground around issues of public service um, and so on, and employment law. Uh, If I'm in other parts of the world, it's a matter of life and death, really. It's a very different order of discussion. So it's almost here that continuity between wanting recognizing the different missional landscape in the uk and about the way in which we occupy the public or engage in the public sphere and that is mirrored by the extent to which we show a concern for the way in which people in other parts of the world are allowed to express their faith and we can't do one without the other no precisely precisely and um and that we put things in their proper context so we are here in europe post-enlightenment, having to find a new narrative and a new discourse 
to talk about human dignity in a very complicated space. In northern Nigeria, if you're a Christian, or if you are uh, a Rohingya Muslim, or if you're a Baha'i in Iran, as I said, it's much more straightforward. This is about your life or your death or your children's education. It's not about the subtleties of employment rights and, and so on in the same way. And so the, the thing we're called to do is to, is to recover that sense of the universality of the mission of God, to say, I experience these tensions here in Europe in post-enlightenment in one way. Other people experience these tensions in a very different way, but actually it's a part of the same continuum. How does the world discuss amongst itself human dignity within the framework of the only available tools with which we can do that called human rights? And that's not an easy task. But it's a task you've highlighted in a really engaging way for us today and shown why it's a task with which we as Christians should be concerned. Joel Edwards, thank you very much for appearing on Talking Theology. It's a pleasure. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com.